0: Bashir Mohammed, person on the internet, activist, blogger, joining us from Edmonton. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Bashir, today we are going to talk about how Albertans are shocked, shocked, I say, to learn that Jason Kenney's United Conservative Party is infested with racists and homophobes. We will talk about why he's going to win anyhow. And Justin Trudeau is shocked, shocked, I say, to be called such mean names by Andrew Sheer. We will talk about why he's a big sucky baby. Glad to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Stephanie Carvin, Trevor LaForce, Marion Habermel, Nolan McGinley, Neil Thomas, Tracy Rollins, Whitney Maurice, and Marcus.
1: My name is Marcus. I'm a postal worker in Toronto, and I support Canada Land for all of the great investigative work that they do from Thunder Bay to Me To We to Corruption Canada. And we need a lot more high quality work like that in our news cycle.
0: Bashir, this episode is also brought to everybody by Fresh Books. Are you a person who sends invoices to other humans? Uh, yeah, I do. Well, then we have something to talk about. Fresh Books is a service that makes that super super easy and it's something that you don't need to pay for i mean there are other ways as you know to send invoices however i will tell you what costs you more money than the money you'll pay for fresh books and that is losing expense receipts have you lost expense receipts that you've needed to recoup uh yes i have Who among us is not? They just become a huge wad in your wallet. It's kind of like, you don't even wanna necessarily keep them around or like, oh yes, please give me the receipt. I just take pictures of my receipts And then I throw away the paper. The kids today are really big about keeping receipts. They kept receipts. They use that figuratively. FreshBooks will literally keep your damn receipts. And that's one of the reasons why it saves you money. It is tax time. And uh, the fact that FreshBooks has my receipts has come in incredibly, incredibly handy, as is everything else that it does. It's just really, really easy and smooth to use. Check it out, see for yourself. You'll get a 30-day free trial when you go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. And, enter Canada land in the how did you hear about us section. Bashir, we've been covering these uh, so-called bozo eruptions where the candidates in the UCP, Jason Kenney's party, have been exposed for having all kinds of racist, kind of horrible comments, private, public, homophobic stuff. They've said sermons equating gay people with pedophile, all sorts of stuff. We are hearing about that through Press Progress. We're hearing about some stuff from Alberta through Jen Gerson's work, and they've been covering that on OPPO. But some of this is work that you've done. Who are you? What do you have to do with this stuff? Tell us, uh, give us a little bit of context and grounding and the role that you play in Alberta politics.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I guess to give some background, I came to Alberta when I was three years old. I grew up here. I did all my schooling from elementary to university, and in the past couple of years, I got into writing mostly about Alberta's history, actually. And I mostly focused on Alberta's history with uh, far-right groups like the KKK. And it was about a year ago when the whole nomination process started for all these parties. I started putting together a list of nomination candidates who were caught saying something that was racist, homophobic, or just pretty much anything that is surreal and stuff that's not acceptable. So I started cataloging it and put together that list. And yeah, since then, as you know, it's slowed up. And I spent a lot of time mostly just keeping track because I know that after this election, people are going to wonder what happened. And I just want to be prepared So that, you know, people can understand that this shouldn't have came as a surprise.
0: Well, I mean, if we were to try to collect the greatest hits here, and I know that there's a lot of people who would like to just dismiss this as, you know, everybody's got some stuff that they regret in their past. But like taken as a whole, it it gets to be pretty damning. I mean, you know, and I'm taking this holistically, your work and others. I mean, we all know about Jason Kenny's past back when he was uh, a student and, and was writing for his uh, Catholic uh, post-secondary education's newspaper and living in San Francisco, wanted legislation that would not allow gay partners to have access to each other as they were dying of AIDS. And then, of course, more recently, his work to make it so that if a kid joins a gay straight alliance at school, uh, their parents find out about it or that this, the teachers, if they want to, are able to tell parents about it, knowing that those clubs literally save students' lives, you know, adding a powerful disincentive, keeping kids from those clubs. And then, you know, you like you get into his candidates and I don't know, maybe I'll let you tell what were you able to find about his candidates?
1: I mean, a lot of it is pretty well documented now, but I think what people should understand is this is not a recent thing. A lot of the focus has been on the two candidates that resigned early on in the election, Kaylin Ford and Ava Kiraokas. But if you go back a year, you know, there's there's a few interesting examples because I think there's a narrative now that Kenny has been responding to this stuff pretty well and like disqualifying people. But if you look at somebody like Cindy Ross, who was running for uh, nomination, uh, Pulse came out from 2015 where she talked about how a mosque in your community was like jailing the bank robbers in the bank vault and instead of disqualifying her from nomination the UCP said that
0: people's views changed and she was allowed to to run let me just try to understand that slur uh, that a mosque itself is like jailing bank robbers in a bank vault yeah 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 and she said this in 2015 so Muslims are the bank robbers. It's actually kind of a, it's not very rhetorically effective racism, but like, it's clearly racist. I don't quite know what she means, but like, it's like, you know more about what she felt than what she was trying to communicate. You made reference to the, uh, Kaylin Ford. Uh, she's the one who, uh, in private communications that were made public, but these are her words. She's an, an adherent to the white replacement theory and thinks it's a really sad, sad thing that whites are being replaced in their own homelands. That came out and then Kyriakos, she made reference to Germany's Muslim migrant rape crisis. Yeah.
1: And she shared a post that called refugees, uh, rape refugees." Rape refugees. Yeah,
0: this is on social media. Okay. So you're pushing back against this idea that Kenny is like, uh, these are aberrations and Kenny is uh, doing a damn good job of holding a line and making sure these people are are, are removed. I, I guess like what you hope people explore is why are there so many damn racists and homophobes in this party as opposed to just being, uh. Well, political neophytes who didn't know they were going to be in politics might have said some stuff privately or in the past that they're not proud of. That's what Kenny has said about his own past, that uh, he doesn't, uh, of course, stand by every position he held when he was in university, which is true of anyone, I suppose. But you know, this might be something different when you add it all up. I think it's important to look like at Kenny's record. I mean, when he was in office, when he was a cabinet minister,
1: he deported things like the barbaric cultural practices hotline. Uh, he supported things such as the niqab ban for somebody if they were doing a citizenship oath. He was the one who supported the niqab ban. Actually, my history with Kenny goes back to 2012 when he cut healthcare benefits for refugees. And back then, he was saying how this was, you know, stopping them from getting what he called gold-plated health care. And uh, I guess to give everyone some context and some disclosure, he came to Edmonton to give a speech in 2012. I was 17. And I basically heckled him, and four guys dragged me out, and they actually uh, arrested me. Eventually they let me go, but this was the first time he was challenged on the refugee health care cuts, and the cuts were later ruled to be cruel and unusual. So if you look at his record, there is a track of supporting xenophobic dog whistles, but also supporting legislation that uh, takes away rights for people who are gay, like for example, The GSA debate here in Alberta, the Wildrose PCs and later on the UCP are still reigniting this debate. There's this very interesting moment uh, when Daniel Smith, early in the election, and she says, I don't see why Jason Kenney would bring up the GSA debate again. And literally that same day is when he put on his education platform. So it's not his record from decades ago. It's his record now. And I think that's something that really needs to be responded to.
0: GSA being the Gay-Straight Alliance issue. Bashir, you said that he supported those initiatives, the uh, Barbaric Cultural Practices hotline and the Niqab ban at uh, citizenship ceremonies. He actually had been the immigration minister. Yeah, and it's interesting because even when
1: he moved out of the immigration role, and I think he was in national defense, he was still supportive of these things, especially during the election uh, a few years ago. Anyways, when we talk about this problem, I think it's very important to emphasize how this is a problem for one party. And I guess for some context, more candidates that are named Todd have been disqualified for racism or homophobia than any other candidate in the Alberta Party, the Liberals and the NDP combined. So I think that illustrates how this is not a both sides issue and this is very clearly one party's problem.
0: All right, so you have, not as a journalist, not as somebody who's paid to do this work, as an activist and as a commenter on the internet, as a citizen, you've made it your business to do this research, to vet these candidates, to publicize what you found. I can't imagine why one would undertake that labor if you didn't think it would make a difference. So is your hope that this is going to result in people thinking twice about voting for the UCP?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, also, I think the important thing to understand is this election is a really good indication of what's going to happen federally. I mean, all the, you know, stuff that's being talked about now, like candidates that are Islamophobic, candidates that have supported white supremacists. I mean, we've seen the same thing federally. The number of MPs who have either spoken at events with white nationalists, uh, there's some MPs a few weeks ago that invited Islamophobic speakers at a event that they were holding. And we also have Carrie Diot, who has not apologized for endorsing Faith Goldie a month after the Quebec mosque shooting. So I guess the reason why this motivates me is because, personally, it has very serious implications. When we talk about Caitlin Ford and what she was saying, she was disqualified. And I guess to put into context, this was after the 2017 uh, Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. And while that was happening, after that happened, she was having a Facebook conversation where she said that she was saddened by the demographic replacement of white people, and that this would not be a peaceful transition. Now, that matters to me, because those are exactly what was in the Chrysler Shooters Manifesto. It's also what motivated the Quebec mosque shooter. So this stuff being normalized, this stuff being allowed has very real stake for me, because when I think about those comments, I think about Three year old Mohad Ibrahim. My brother's name is Now uh, He's my younger brother. So, what these candidates are pushing, these ideas that are being entertained have very serious consequences. Jason Kenney's red line is that you can join the party as long as you're not a member of the hate group. So, you can hold these beliefs and still be welcome to the party. And to me, that's very disturbing. Is it going to make a difference? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's already, I've already seen a shift of how this has been covered very early on in the election but also during the nomination period. A lot of these cases were either described as bozo eruptions which I don't really like because in in mass what's actually happening which is somebody being a white supremacist, somebody being racist, somebody being homophobic. It was also these comments were also cast as being quote controversial. Like very rarely you would see the actual problem be named. Uh, In addition, very early on in the election, this stuff was cast as personal views and not political, which I guess to make it clear, somebody being a white supremacist is a like a hardened political position that has serious policy implications. So thankfully, I've seen a change in that. I've seen more outlets become comfortable in using racist in their headlines or white supremacists. I have seen journalists pushing back much more at press conferences. So I think there is a change, and and, and I am optimistic. Mm-hmm. Now, I know the polling shows that the UCP uh, is heading towards a majority, but I'm not going to be pessimistic because I'm alive. I'm somebody who has the ability to do this work, and even if it has a small impact, I think it's very worthwhile. It was actually James Baldwin who said that, that I need to be optimistic because I'm alive. So I think for progressives here, Anybody who is against this stuff, it's hard to be optimistic. But I can tell you, a week or two ago, I was at a rally for students in GSAs, and it was amazing seeing kids show up, families, people
0: in strollers. Like, that motivated me, and that's the Alberta that that I know. I mean, you have had an impact. I'm thinking specifically, there's a post on your blog about... How the media does a terrible job. You've done some media criticism on this and you just alluded to it where the media will cover this stuff, you know, maybe even reluctantly and late. I mean, I don't know why they didn't vet these candidates, but after you expose some of this stuff, they'll say, "Okay, this candidate has been thrown out because of their controversial posts. And then you challenge them on that and say, what do you mean controversial? It's a racist post. And we know that you've had an impact because in in at least one case, they actually just changed the headline. And, you know, obviously the pressure that you're exerting, perhaps it's political pressure, but it's also just pressure to be descriptive journalists. Like, say what the fuck you're actually talking about. Changing the way the press covers something is meaningful. It's easier than the next part, which is, I think, you know, you're holding out that this exists and there's sort of a challenge to the population. You're sort of providing a service saying like, well, thanks to this work, you can't pretend that this isn't so. This person said this. You know, I would hope that this would be disqualifying. And then it's really up to people to determine whether or not they find that to be a big deal or not. And that's where I wonder whether anything is going to make an impact. I mean, I talked earlier about Jen Gerson's work. She was uh, involved in reporting about this whole stalking horse uh, candidacy where it looks pretty damn conclusive that, The Kenny campaign propped up somebody else's campaign so that somebody else could slag off his main opponent in the uh, race for UCP leadership. I mean, this is just like, to me, I'm not using this in a legal sense. I mean, certainly it's deceitful. It seems like fraud to me. There's also, uh, you know, bubbling scandals about electoral fraud in that process as well. And where the money came from is something we don't have the full answers on yet. So you add that all up, you add that to Kenny's own history Why these issues where he has such a terrible track record uh, with his relationship with LGBTQ people, there's just a ton of stuff there that you would hope would place what he's doing outside of the realm of acceptability for the electorate. And yet the polls say what they're going to say. And I guess we're going to find out come Election Day. I mean, you know, progressives, I think at this point, would feel lucky if Kenny got a minority government. What is this uh, telling us about the voters in Alberta, this this sense of Western grievance? Like, it's uh, hard for me to understand from downtown Toronto when so much of the ire towards Notley just seems like, well, you know, oil tanked, you know, like, what was she supposed to do? Like, what do you think he's going to do? How is cutting the tax rate for corporations going to help the people who are so angry? Like, it's it's very hard to understand.
1: So Alberta is a very strange province. And I think... To give some people some context, when the oil boom was happening, it was very easy to go up to Formac, work in the industry, and make six figures. And because of that, almost everybody in the province has a stake in that industry. However, when the crash hit, it really was a wake-up call for a lot of people. And that's actually partially why Rachel Dolly was able to get in and inform government. But I think what a lot of those Albertans don't realize is that these companies are not... Our friends and that it's a bit ridiculous to hedge, you know, so much of our future on a resource that is very unpredictable. So I think a problem here too has been framing because the NDP has kind of fallen into that trick, which is, you know, we need to appeal to oil companies, we need to appeal to pipelines and those things will save us when in reality those are the very things that led us to the situation that we have now. When we speak about political policies. The NDP is known, I guess, across Canada as a progressive party. But if you look at their platform points, all the parties in the election, every single one supports pipeline. So I think that's a problem here, because even the alternative is hedging their bets and promising something that's not going to happen. Like oil is not going to go back to $100 a barrel. And to understand Alberta, you need to understand just how much we depended on this, and how much it you know impacted everyone personally, like every I have family members who work in the industry and were affected, and so do many other people here.
0: I'm kind of happy to play the stereotypical ugly ontarian role here, like. Boo-hoo. Like, I'm sorry. Like, this idea that people are guaranteed a six-figure income for doing work that elsewhere would be compensated a third of that or that there's some, you know, God-given right to right. enjoy these kind of outsized profits in perpetuity forever. That You know, this 50% plus uh, separatist sentiment and this sense of anger and grievance with the rest of Canada. It's just like, I'm happy for people who pulled huge salaries for the time when when they did. I'm, I'm happy for people who pulled themselves out of, uh, you know, class mobility issues. All that stuff's fantastic. But there's a cost to it. And either way, it's finite. You know, you're talking about a non-renewable resource. So it's hard for me to find my compassion for that. And as you point out, like you got like a uh, democracy there where there is like the furthest left party that you would actually consider viable also supports pipelines. It's a non-starter to oppose pipelines in Alberta politics. Like, you know, this idea that we need to, to somehow feel that or sympathize with that is one that's a bit lost on me.
1: And I guess the important thing to note is, like, it's not the fault of the workers. It's not the fault of the average Albertan that we ended up in this situation. It's because of our government during the boom, which chose to not save this money, which chose not to, you know, put heavy royalties on these companies. And I was reading this article, I think it was in the Golden Mail, and it was called Nobody Should Feel Sorry for Alberta. And it was basically saying that if we had the same tax rate as BC, which is the next lowest, then we would not be in a deficit right now. So I think that's something that hasn't really been talked about. And I think it's messaging that I wish the NDP or any other opposition party would take that Alberta can still be the energy province. Like, we can still lead the country in energy, but not non-renewable energy, not depending on oil companies, but moving towards renewable resources. We have a lot of tradespeople in the province who, I'm not saying it's easy, but if there is a political will, could retrain to enhancing our grid and transitioning to resources that are not as unpredictable as oil
0: or natural gas. That's a very idealistic uh, way of putting it. Like maybe if, and as you say, like if different choices had been made, I mean, a lot of people moved West for a gold rush and then they ran out of gold, you know, people moved to Alberta for those jobs because of the boom times, knowing that it was a boom and bust economy. It seems like it's like the strain to create some other narrative of like the other society that should be there or could have been there or will be there. If things redirect, a lot of people were just chasing the money.
1: Yeah, no, 100%. And, and I guess that's why it's a bit frustrating to look at this election and see how the UCP has been framed as, you know, being the party that cares about the economy. The blame, I think, lays on our political leaders, but also uh, media in how this narrative has been able to take hold the narrative that is not true and that if we... Believe it, if we support it politically, if we think that's how we're going to fix our problems, it's a narrative that's not going to help Alberta at all.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, And just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help as the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get ten percent off of your first month at BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. That's BetterH.E.L.P.com/CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Bashir, we have a segment on the show called Duly Noted, and that is where we note things that maybe need a bit more attention. Do you have something for us today?
1: Yes, I want to talk a little bit about Danielle Smith. She's a radio host here at Edmonton for Chorus. She used to be the leader for the Wildrose Party, and in the 2012 election, she famously or infamously defended a candidate that said, gay people will burn in a lake of fire. And because of that, that's partially why the Wildrose lost the election. Anyways, somehow she became a radio host, and after the Kaylin Ford stuff, she had Kaylin Ford on her show for 45 minutes, where she did not apologize. Kaylin Ford did not apologize. In addition, she agreed with Kaylin Ford that the demographic debate, as she called it, had merits. This has not been covered by uh, any media outlet here in Alberta. And what I've been told is that they have a policy of not critiquing other outlets. So basically, you've had a white supremacist go on a show for 45 minutes, not apologize, spread her propaganda, and this hasn't been seriously looked at. And I think that's something
0: that needs to be noted, because it signals what's to come in the federal election. Duly noted. uh, I got a similar one. I actually get like bored myself of this stuff. I mean, like, you know this when you're rooting through these histories of like, you know, I think that racism is a stupid ideology amongst other things. So it's like spending a lot of time with stupid people and reading all their messages and going through like giving too much attention to stupid people. I know that's work that you've done and it's work that we've been doing here for years. People like Faith Goldie. And the question of why you do it, like I don't I don't like even the way it makes me sound or feel like paying such close attention to these droppings and then wagging a finger. You shouldn't have said that as if that's the point. The point is that you are documenting a history. The point is you are putting that question out there saying, is this okay?" And the point is you're giving the ammunition the record, the documentation necessary for others to make an informed choice. And what I want to duly note is, uh, as a lot of people know, that uh, Facebook this week banned Faith Goldie and a bunch of other white nationalist groups, accounts, and supposedly ads in a reversal of an earlier position where they were essentially saying, like, unless you actually explicitly, you know, evoke certain words or use hate speech in a very explicit way that our algorithms can, you know, we're not going to go after ideology That's where we draw the line. They've reversed themselves. They said, well, actually, I guess we can figure out where organized hate is and we can get rid of it. I want to duly note a couple things about that. One is you're welcome. No, that's not what I'm going to duly note. Not going to take a victory lap on this. And there are a lot of people who have been documenting everything that makes Faith Goldie atrocious. I want to first of all point out that Facebook does not deserve any big high fives for this. They could have done it a long time ago. I want to duly note the fact that they are still Running shit. Like uh, people have been looking around and saying, well, you got rid of Faith Goldie, but her her sponsored ads are still on Facebook and uh, other stuff like that. Yellow vests are still active on Facebook. And uh, I want to duly note what I heard this week on CBC Radio. Kevin Chan, who is a former Liberal Party guy, Michael Ignatieff guy, currently Facebook's policy guy in Canada, he went on Metro Morning on CBC Radio here in Toronto. Uh, ironically, tough interview with Matt Galloway. Matt Galloway, of course, Well, Metro Morning fired Jesse Hirsch after Jesse Hirsch called out to the CBC for their own promotion of Facebook and his decades long tenure as a tech columnist ended with that. So here's Matt Galloway showing that he can ask the tough questions to Facebook and Kevin Chan, I think, basically uh, dodging the questions pretty handily. What that came down to was Kevin Chan saying, you know, yeah, we're getting rid of hate. We're also uh, monitoring election interference And every time Matt Galloway asked, you know, why should we trust you or or can you promise us that this stuff won't make a resurgence, Kevin Chan used the word security. This is a security issue by which he went on to explain that means I can't promise you that stuff's not going to pop up on our platform. Basically, a security issue is whack-a-mole. It'll pop up. We'll smack it down. It'll find another way to pop up. We'll smack it down. Uh, sounds reasonable. You know, they got uh, millions and millions of people putting stuff on Facebook all the time. What do you expect of them? But then you think about it. I don't see any hardcore pornography on Facebook. I don't see any like ISIS propaganda or Islamist terrorist messaging or recruitment or or graphic violence on Facebook. They have, as far as I can tell, completely blocked that stuff from their platform. They can do it. Right. They seem to be able to get rid of content, en mass, entire categories of content, when they really want to. So I want to duly note that I don't really buy what they're saying. Duly noted. Uh, I think it's important that uh, all
1: politicians uh, be straight with Canadians in how they characterize uh, their own actions and their own beliefs. I think we're going to have an election uh, in the coming months. Uh, you can't be inventing things. You can't be lying to Canadians. Uh, and I think uh, highlighting that there are consequences um, in short term and long term when politicians choose to uh, twist the truth and distort uh, reality for Canadians. It's not something we're going to put up with.
0: It's not something they're going to put up with. He sounds pathetic. Trudeau explaining why he sent a notice of libel to Andrew Scheer. You can't just make things up. And he's going to defend himself with this libel threat. He's since gone on to say, uh, well, are you actually going to see that through? Because a notice of libel is not a libel lawsuit. He won't commit to that. After Andrew Shear responded by saying, I stand by everything I've said about you and I welcome legal action. I think like so many libel notices, this was a rather foolish attempt to chill speech, to stop speech and not a legitimate grievance. To meet the test of, uh, for this to be liable, it has to be not only defamatory, but it has to be able to survive the defense of truth, a defense against libel is truth. And what Scheer said, the supposedly libelous content, is that uh, Scheer in his propaganda and campaigning and messaging has said that the Trudeau government obviously interfered with the criminal process in SNC-Lavalin. And I think that uh, the contentious word is he used the word lied, that Trudeau lied about it. But Bashir, didn't he, didn't the PMO lie when they denied the original Globe and Mail story? Yeah. You know, it's a
1: bit interesting following that whole story because it took me like a few days to understand the scope of it. But, you know, they've handled that pretty badly. I think the main thing that stood out to me was all the anonymous leaks that are coming out that were, I'm going to be pretty straightforward, but they're... They're racist. I mean, for any indigenous person, any woman of color, any person of color that works in an organization, we are very aware how institutions respond when you push a little bit too far. So, yeah, they've lied. I don't see why they would do that. It seems like they're getting very bad advice. But, you know, this whole scandal, the thing that stood out to me the most is just how hypocritical the liberals have been, with their claim of supporting, you know, diverse voices, when in reality they would shut those voices out. So that's kind of how I've been following. That's kind of been my response. But as you know,
0: I've been very focused on Alberta. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I've been following it just um, really just baffled, just trying to figure out what the hell they're thinking. I mean, the closest I can come to understanding it was suggested by uh, John Ebotson in the Globe and Mail, where he was saying, well, you can actually kind of track back this line of defense with liberals to Michael Wernick when he said, you know, uh, the... I'm tired of having, you know, the reputations of good liberals dragged through the the cesspool, though the vomitorium of social media that they've sort of decided, you know, well, if you're not going to apologize for your behavior, then I guess you've got to defend it. And we are the malign party. We are the victims here. And what that sort of morphed into is a positioning of themselves as standing in defiance to lies, dirty tricks, but increasingly online hatred and hostility. They have been kind of piggybacking and hijacking this narrative that Andrew Shear is a hate monger. And I think that, uh, you know, where they're trying to find their virtue is an associate, basically like playing on people's fear of conservatives and fear of Andrew Shear. And there are extensive connections between Andrew Shear and hateful people and hateful thought. You can play on that stuff. But, like, I think that going after him for libel was a... The only way I can explain it is it was a misguided attempt to say... You're just another troll, Andrew Shear, and I'm going to defend myself against your lies. Uh, you know, this shall not pass. And it kind of crumbled immediately. I mean, he won't even say, I'm going to see this lawsuit through. I mean, what happens with libel is like, it very rarely goes to court. By the way, I, you know, we need libel laws, right? When Rob Ford went and called Daniel Dale, essentially suggested that he was a pedophile and uh, said that he was, you know, leering over his fence. And it was just a lie. You've got this powerful person, the mayor of Toronto, uh, making it impossible for journalists to do their job, subjecting Daniel Dale to all this harassment from Ford Nation. And it was just a lie. I think there's a point where you do need the law to step in. And what happens when you have been libeled in such a clear way. It's just a completely untrue. Ford apologized. He was forced to, I'm sure he hated doing it, but he had to say, yeah, I apologize to Daniel Dill. That's not true. That sometimes happens. And that's, those are the rare cases where libel law is working as it's supposed to. It's far, far more frequent for it to be used. And we have faced this many times as a way of somebody saying, shut up. I don't like what you're saying about me. It's not necessarily that it's not true or libelous. I don't like it and I don't want you to say it anymore. I'm going to make it very expensive for you to keep saying it. And that's why notices of libel often are not followed by actual libel suits. And even when they are, those suits often fizzle. They're not actually fought, especially in a political context. Whenever politicians are suing each other for libel or threatening to do so, I think it's just their way of saying, like, you've hit a nerve and I don't want you to say that anymore.
1: To segue a little bit stay on the topic of libel, are you familiar with Kerry Diot in Edmonton and his connection with Faith Goldie?
0: I'm going to say no. It's ringing the okay. bell. Help me so, out.
1: So Kerry Diott he's a member of parliament in Edmonton. He used to be a Sun journalist, but in 2017, a month after the Quebec mosque shooting, he took a photo with Faith Goldie and, and the tweet said, thanks for making media great again. He hasn't addressed the photo at all, and since then he had several other cases where he's said questionable or have done racist things. So I called him racist this fall, and Arthur Hamilton, the Conservative Party's lawyer, sent me a libel notice saying that I defamed Kerry Diot. And thankfully, I was able to respond to that, and he didn't go forward with it. So it is interesting how, like, in Canada... Like, I'm not, you know, using the Trudeau example, but when people call out bigotry, you know, their defense is to go to court. So I just think that's really interesting while we're having this conversation about libel.
0: Yeah, you use the R word, you know, and I think that the the message there was I don't want anyone using that word uh, to describe me, which is a different thing than saying that that word is untrue and I'm prepared to prove that it's untrue.
1: Yeah, he went on something interesting. Uh, so he threatened to sue a number of like random people, so me and a few other people, but he actually went ahead and he's currently in a court case with the Gateway, which is the University of Alberta student paper. Uh, and he's suing them for, I think, $150,000. Now, if you look historically, by the way, it's amazing that it, it took a student paper to call this out. But historically, in the 1930s, when the KKK was gaining uh, momentum in Alberta, it was actually like the gateway, the student newspaper back then, to call out J.J. Maloney, who was the Alberta Klan leader. And they wrote this statement on the front page, and the last words were, we don't particularly like the gentleman. And Maloney responded by saying, this is untrue, and he basically challenged them to a debate. So it's interesting how, you know, it, it comes down to students, random people to call this stuff out, and face the threat of lawsuits. When, you know, most of the people we would expect to take this on, our media, our pundits, our politicians are pretty silent. So I find most of our connections really interesting.
0: I long for the day when uh, we don't particularly like the gentleman it was a wicked, devastating burn. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts for today. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send me. Our Twitter account is at CanadaLand. Where can people find you, Bashir? At Bashir Mohammed on Twitter. Our website is CanadaLandShow.com. Something you can check out there is this week's episode of OPPO, where there's a lot more on the Alberta election. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, that is something we offer when you support us with $5 a month or more at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Please do.